If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to uh, Matthew 26 this morning. We want to look at verses 69 through 75, uh, Peter's three denials. Matthew 26, uh, 69 through 75. Now let's pray together. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Uh, The word of our God shall stand forever. Help me to teach it accurately and clearly and make the appropriate applications as we study together this morning. So we commit our time in the word to you. Thank you for speaking to us uh, through the word by the Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You'll note on the overhead we have the outline. Uh, The theme of Matthew is Christ the King, and we have worked our way through the evidences of his being the Messianic King, and we have now come to chapters 26 and 27, the Passion of the King. Now, the whole of Matthew 26 finds us deep in the dark shadow of the cross. In this chapter, that is Matthew 26, we find the religious authorities plotting to kill Jesus. Mary anointing Jesus for burial... Judas agreeing to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. The last Passover, introduction to the Lord's Supper. Jesus foretelling of his disciples scattering. Peter's denial that it will happen to him. Christ's affirmation that it will. Jesus praying in agony in the garden. The disciples sleeping. The arrest of Jesus. The trial of Jesus. And Peter's three denials of Christ, a lot in this chapter. As I say in our study, we are deep in the shadow of the cross. Matthew 26 showcases human depravity and human weakness. And it shows the exemplary perfection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see his patience in dealing with depravity and his mercy in dealing with human weakness. And we can all relate to this. We left off last time where the religious leaders that formed the Supreme Court in Israel had determined that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy because he claimed to be the Christ, the Son of God. And because of this, they deemed him to be a false teacher worthy of death. And then they began to abuse him by spitting on him, by blindfolding him, and uh, smiting him, striking him, and saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? We now pick up the narrative in Matthew 26 at verse 69. And this picks up where the footnote of Matthew 26, 58 left off. Note what we saw there back earlier in the chapter, verse 58. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. And he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. So here's Peter in the context of the priest, the high priest's courtyard, uh, sitting there with the servants of the high priest. Now in this context, we see Peter fold like a cheap tent, as they say. Under the pressure and in the context of the high priest's courtyard, Peter's three denials are recorded in all four Gospels. Although the accounts bring out differing details, which are sometimes a challenge to kind of coordinate, but but they do. We pick it up, verse 69. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee? Now understand that the people from the Jerusalem area, uh, the Judea or the Judah area of which Jerusalem is right in the the middle, uh, that area looked down on Galilee and the people from from Galilee. Uh, Note on the uh, overhead here what we're talking about. Judea here, you got Jerusalem kind of right in, I see in the middle here. And, of course, no, Bethlehem's right below, not far from, a couple miles from Jerusalem. But way up north, you have Galilee. And so these folks down here look down on these folks from Galilee. And so that's, uh, that's the background here. You see, the spiritual people were thought to be from the Jerusalem area. I mean, they were supposedly the, the spiritually sophisticated people. 
I mean, this is where the priests were, right? I mean, you've got the temple there, and this is where the priests were. This is where the learned scribes were located. Way up north in Galilee is where the uncouth people lived. After all, they, they lived where they were in close contact to the Gentiles. You know, those filthy Gentiles, as the sophisticated Jews would see it. Therefore, many think this servant girl statement probably had a derogatory and condescending tone reflective of looking down on the backward and culturally inferior Galileans. So the tendency to put Jesus down as a Galilean was indicative of the Judean arrogance reflective of the attitude of many of the religious leaders who lived in Jerusalem and that surrounding area. But had they paid close attention to the prophets, and often they didn't, although they were very learned, although uh, they, they knew the scriptures, uh, yet uh, they failed to really pay close attention to the prophets at certain points. But had they done so, they would have known that indeed the Messiah's ministry would vitally involve the area of Galilee. You see, 700 years before the time of Christ, the prophet Isaiah wrote this. Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 1 and 2. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. As when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, that area that relates to Galilee, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. The area of Galilee was called Galilee of the Gentiles because this northernmost area was the gateway through which the Gentiles entered the land, either as invaders or traders. And it was this Jewish territory that most keenly felt the impact of foreign influence, so much so that it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. But this area of darkness was promised to see great light, the great light of the Messiah, which they did. You see, Christ spent about 85% of his public ministry in the area of Galilee. Isn't that interesting? Didn't hang out around the sophisticated religious uh, Jerusalem area. No, 85% of it up there in Galilee, which is fulfillment of prophecy. But the Jewish folks down south in the area of Jerusalem did not recognize or appreciate the significance of that reality. Now, as a footnote here, uh, all of Jesus' disciples were from Galilee, with perhaps the exception of Judas. Uh, the very name Judas is the Greek name for the Hebrew Judah. Now, proudly, Jews from the area of Judah would commonly name their sons Judas, which literally means praise. Uh, really, the name Judas by itself is a beautiful name. But then Judas went and ruined it all. I mean, nobody in their right mind, according to my way of thinking, would name their child Judas today, right? Say, what are you thinking? Uh, another reason to think Judas may have been from Judea is because he is called Iscariot. Iscariot is thought to be the Greek form of a Hebrew word meaning man of Kirioth, with Kirioth being a town in Judah. So a uh, note here on my overhead, uh, you got Jerusalem, man of Kirioth which would be a, a hint that perhaps he was from down here. And we don't want to be overly dogmatic, but very possibly that was the case, making him the lone disciple from, uh, that is not a Galilean. But notice, uh, as uh, this lady, uh, this, this servant girl, says, you were with Jesus of Galilee, verse 70, but he denied it. He denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. 
Now remember, it was through John, uh, the disciple John, the apostle John, that Peter gained access into the courtyard because John personally knew the high priest as, as noted in John 18, verse 16. Now perhaps this servant girl recognized John as a disciple of Jesus and therefore suspected that Peter was also a disciple. We're not given a lot of the background, but perhaps. Whatever the case, Peter could feel all eyes were on him in a context that was very hostile to Jesus. You know, it's one thing to be with Jesus' friends like I am this morning and really champion you. But what if you're in a context where you're the, you know, you're the lone man out here and this whole group is just hostile? Boy, that's a whole nother challenge. And in that context, he caved. He started out with kind of a general denial, essentially saying, I don't know what you're talking about. But this caught Peter off guard. John MacArthur says, a person's involuntary response to the unexpected is a more reliable indicator of his character than his planned reaction to a situation he anticipates. It's when you're caught off guard that our true character is most likely to show itself. Yeah, I think there's some truth there. Now, it is amazing how we can seemingly be so bold in one context and then suddenly be caught off guard And be shown to be very weak. You know, that prophet Elijah in the Old Testament, we we really regard him highly, as we should. But on the one hand, even Elijah was incredibly bold as he took on 850 false prophets, as seen in 1 Kings 18. But then in the very next chapter, he was terrified by one woman. named Jezebel, who threatened to kill him. We are all made of the same stuff. We are all human, and being human, we are all quite vulnerable. We are very fragile and weak, and given the right circumstances, we too can easily cave. You see, I'll never cave. You might want to study the first part of the chapter before you come to the last part of the chapter, because that was Peter's. And what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12? Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We're all vulnerable. Now, remember that just a few hours earlier, Peter had dogmatically told Christ, quote, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Verse 33. But here he suddenly was stumbling. Peter, just a few hours earlier, had said, quote, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Verse 35. But here he was, denying Jesus. It's good to remember, we're all like Peter. We too are very vulnerable. We too can fail and fall. It's good to be humble and realize that within ourselves, we are not strong. We need God's help. Verse 71. And when he had gone out into the gateway, another girl saw him and said to him, uh, said to those who were there, bringing other people in, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. Feeling the pressure, evidently, Peter decided to move towards the entrance of the courtyard where perhaps the lighting was a little more dim, being further away from the light of the fires by which the people were keeping warm. Hopefully, he was thinking uh, the focus here would not be on him. I mean, I'll kind of be in the shadows of, of the night here more. Maybe they won't see me, won't pay attention to me. But even there, another girl recognized him and outed him saying, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. Peter was finding it very hard to hide. And by the way, it's kind of hard to hide in this world. Uh, They know where the Christians are. Get the magnifying glass out. Let's find them. Again, the way this girl stated it, it was was thought that it was probably a derogatory uh, tone here. You see, Nazareth was a city with a bad reputation. 
It was so bad that Nathaniel in John 1.46 said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And we all know the answer. Yes. Surprisingly, it can. But can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nobody expected that the esteemed Messiah would hail from such a place as Nazareth. So Nazareth was really a term of contempt. And this was undoubtedly a put-down in and of itself. The emphasis on Jesus being from Galilee and being from Nazareth may tie into the idea that the sophisticated religious Jews from Judah generally considered Jesus to be a false messiah. Because of, because, simply because of where he came from. I mean, we read in John chapter 7 and verse 52, uh, this is in reference to the chief priests and the Pharisees, they answered uh, and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Prophets don't come out of Galilee. That automatically discredits Jesus. They don't come out of Galilee. Are you kidding me? That's tainted by Gentile turf up there. So you see, they expected the Messiah to come out of where? Out of Bethlehem which was called the city of David. David hailed from there. And the Messiah, who was to be the son of David, was also to hail from there. And so they thought they had a verse to back up what they were thinking. I mean, you know, 700 years before the time of Christ, the Micah, prophet, Micah the prophet did write, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah... Judah, right? Yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. He comes, he comes out of Bethlehem. Well, we know that the prophet said this. What they fail to understand is that Jesus the Christ would indeed be born in Bethlehem, which he was, but that he would then grow up in Nazareth in Galilee. They fail to see the the full picture, which prophetically sees Jesus as being born in Bethlehem, but then having his ministry associated with Galilee. Thus, they confused Christ's hometown with his birthplace. A footnote, uh, by the way, the chief priests and the Pharisees were wrong in saying that no prophet had come from Galilee. You see, Jonah was from Galilee. Nahum may also have been from Galilee, as well as Hosea and perhaps Elijah. Even in referring to Jesus in a derogatory manner as Jesus of Nazareth, they didn't realize it, but they really were fulfilling prophecy. You see, in Matthew chapter 2, 23, it says, And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now this is a little bit confusing. Because you see, there are no prophets in the Old Testament that specifically call Jesus a Nazarene. So what does this mean? Well, thank you for asking. Understand that being called a Nazarene, someone from Nazareth, was essentially a slur. The idea of being a Nazarene is that of being a despised person. Which is how the Old Testament prophets describe the coming Messiah. Although the word Nazarene is not found in the Old Testament, Matthew uh, 2.23 simply presents a general truth found in various prophets that show the Messiah would be characterized as a Nazarene, which is to say a despised person associated with contempt. Thus, Matthew 2.23 appeals to a prominent descriptive theme in the Old Testament rather than to a specific text. And notice uh, we see the prominence of this all over in the Old Testament. For example, uh, the Messianic Psalm of Psalm 22.6, I am a worm. And no man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. Psalm 118.22, the stone which the builders 
the leaders, rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. Isaiah 53, verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So to be rejected and despised like Christ was, was in effect to be labeled a Nazarene. That's the concept. Uh, Corinth, by the way, had a similar reputation. To be called a Corinthian was in effect to be called an immoral person because of its notoriety for immoral behavior. So to be called a Nazarene was to be labeled a person of bad character, which is how they defined Jesus. Uh, This is the sense of he was numbered with the transgressors. I mean, they put him right there. He's He's a transgressor. That's why he's on the cross. They saw him as an evil rebel. This is the sense of they made or assigned his grave with the wicked. That's what they intended. Now, God had other plans as he ends up in the tomb of a rich man. But, uh, but they had assigned his grave with the wicked because you see, in their minds, that's where he should be buried, with the wicked. Being from Nazareth, they assumed he too was a person of bad character for which the city was known. So in the mind of the average Judean, Jesus had two strikes against him. Number one, he was from Galilee, which was a boorish place to begin with. And number two, he not only was from Galilee, he was from kind of the worst of the worst places. He was from Nazareth, a place of shame and disgust. Surely with this background, he could not be the Messiah. Or so they reasoned. So in associating Peter with Jesus of Galilee, with Jesus of Nazareth, they were identifying him with one they considered to be a false teacher from a compromised place with a bad reputation. And in the heart of the high priest's courtyard, Peter felt tremendous pressure to disassociate with Jesus. And so in response, verse 72 says, but again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. This time, he intensified his denial. He went from merely saying, I don't know what you're talking about, to now bringing an oath into the equation. With an oath, he said, I do not know the man. He wasn't even willing to use his name, simply saying the man. Now, in taking an oath, Peter was saying something like, So help me, God, I do not know the man. In effect, he was invoking a solemn curse upon himself if he was lying. This really showed a total lack of reverence for God in the moment. Anytime one lies, it is serious. But to lie under oath is even more serious. It compounds the the magnitude of what is being said. To lie under oath about not knowing Jesus was a horrible sin of unfaithfulness. There are really two Greek words used in the New Testament for to know, and there's there's a lot of overlap, and yet often there is distinction as well. Uh, To know, uh, gnosko, uh, objective knowledge, uh, what is learned experientially, and oida, Uh, in inward, intuitive knowledge, uh, what is known intimately. This second word, oida, is the word that's used here. The emphasis here is not merely that Peter vowed he didn't know Jesus experientially as an acquaintance, gnosko, but rather that he had no intimate knowledge, oida, no intimate knowledge of Jesus at all. Peter is vowing that he knows absolutely nothing about Jesus. And they could have said, well, what are you doing here? Right? What's your interest? You, you, you have no knowledge? Well, yeah. Now, earlier, Jesus had taught very plainly in uh, Matthew. We'll save that. Just keep that. That's for later. But Jesus had taught in Matthew 5, 34 through 37, I say to you, do not swear at all, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. 
You see, the Jews had a terrible trait, a terrible tendency to play word games with oaths. They might regularly stretch the truth, but if they said, I swear, then they were claiming they were really telling the truth this time. And they had a system that allowed for certain loopholes. For example, if they swore by heaven, uh, that would not be as binding as if they swore by God's throne in heaven. So they all kind of, these little word games related to oaths. Now, certainly, Jesus allowed for the proper dignified taking of oaths in appropriate settings. But playing verbal games with vows as a common way of life is hypocritical. Jesus said his people should, as a way of life, tell the truth. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. You don't have to strengthen it with some vow. Just my yes is yes and my no is no. You see, to have to strengthen Your common, ordinary, everyday speech with an oath shows that something is seriously wrong. The person who is constantly saying, I swear it's true, probably has a major problem with lying. Peter fell right back into the Jewish way of trying to make himself look like he's really telling the truth by strengthening his denial with an oath. The very thing Jesus said not to do. And he was indeed lying on top of it. Not only did Peter not strengthen his word with an oath, he intensified the lie that he was telling. People who lie under oath are a most serious kind of liar. You know, it's what we call perjury. There are special penalties, even under the law, for perjury. Verse 73. A little later, those who stood by came and and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Now, those from Galilee had a unique, what we might call northern, since they were up north, a unique northern type of accent. You know, kind of like in America, we, we talk about the southern drawl or the New England nasal tone, right? I mean, you understand up in New England, they, they, don't have, they don't have the letter R in the alphabet, right? I mean, they don't have cars, they have cause, right? I mean, I'm not sure. Do they speak English up there? I'm just teasing you. <laughs> I'm just messing. But yeah, they do. Uh, but you get the point here. A definite accent is involved here for, from those up in Galilee. Said, Peter, you've got a definite accent that gives you away. You're, you're from up in Galilee. And by the way, this would suggest that Peter had been doing some talking. I mean, if you don't talk, they won't figure out you have an accent. And uh, so if you want to remain incognito, perhaps the best thing you should do is keep quiet. Which I think Peter found it very hard to do, by the way. Uh, It seems that Peter always had something to say. And even here in the priest's courtyard that night, he's talking too much. You know that guy, right? Always has to say something. I hate to say it, but I might be that guy. Uh, I often say I resemble Peter many times. Uh, The fact that they thought Peter's accent proved him to be a disciple of Jesus serves to show just how prominent was Christ's ministry up north in Galilee. And how few followers he evidently had down south in the area of Judea or Judah. Now Luke brings out that this third confrontation about Peter's identity happened about an hour later. A space of time later. After the second confrontation. And John brings out that the main individual pushing the conversation with Peter at this point was a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off earlier in the night. You know, his name was Malchus. uh, At the time when they came to arrest Jesus in the garden. Now, having lied twice, the second time with an oath, Peter now goes full bore on denial. I mean full bore. Verse 74. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. 
immediately the rooster crowed. Now, the idea of curse here is not that of profanity. It's the idea of calling down a curse on himself if he is lying. The idea here is to call down curses, to swear oaths. So Peter was saying something like, May God strike me dead if I am lying. And he was compounding the situation by calling down curses on himself and piling oaths on top of it. I mean, Peter was verbally making as strong as he could possibly make it, claiming he absolutely did not know Christ and he's swearing to it. He's, he's making oaths to that effect, just swearing on top of swearing and oath upon top of oath. As I say, lying is always serious. Proverbs 6 says, God hates lying. It's an abomination to him. How much worse to lie under oath, which is in effect to lie straight in the face of God and dare him to hold you accountable to it by way of an oath. To lie in God's name is a very severe form of using the Lord's name in vain. You know, part of the uh, Ten Commandments. Whoops, let me back up here. Can I do that? Yeah, there we go. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, to use the Lord's name in vain as a cuss word is blasphemy, which called for the death penalty in the Old Testament. Uh, For example, here in Leviticus chapter 24, Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the children of Israel, and this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. So they're in a fight. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Sheolmoth, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. Then they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to him. What what do we do with this guy? Clearly he blasphemed. What, What do we do with him? Well, The text continues, Leviticus 24, 13. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take outside the camp him who cursed. Then let all who heard him, the witnesses, lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. And whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall surely stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. So God made it very clear that he is holy, and the penalty for using his name in vain as a cuss word was the death penalty. Now in our day, people have, they threw the Bible away long ago. And they have no reverence for God at all, as is reflected in their common speech every day. You see, they're constantly using God's name uh, in vain, either as a cuss word or irreverently, just as a filler word, not even realizing what they're doing. Sadly, even you hear many Christians do this, either ignorantly or whatever. I mean, it might be something as simple as saying, Oh my God! Which always triggers me to want to ask them, And who might that be? You know, just a thought. I mean, they brought it up, right? Uh, Any flippant or irreverent use of God's name is using it in vain. But we're so biblically ignorant as a society, we don't even know that anymore. You see, so serious did the Jews take this prohibition that they completely stopped using the most sacred name for God in the Old Testament scriptures? Namely, God's name, Yahweh. You see, the Jews considered the name Yahweh to be God's most holy name. It's what we call his covenant name in relationship to Israel. And so to avoid using God's name in vain, they didn't want to use the the name of God at all. You you, you can't be too careful here. Especially in relationship to his name Yahweh. So in their reading, when they came to the name Yahweh, 
they would insert another name for God just to make sure they didn't use God's name Yahweh in vain. So they would, when they came to Yahweh in the reading, they would read Adonai, another name for God, instead. Adonai means master. Consequently, the Jews eventually forgot how to even pronounce the name Yahweh properly. Even to this very day, we are not totally sure how it should be pronounced, even though we commonly say Yahweh. Maybe it's not right because it's been lost. The Jews did not pronounce it, so we don't even know exactly how it is to be properly pronounced. However, using God's name in vain is more than verbally misusing it in a profane way or as a cuss word. It is that, but it's more than that. You see, any time a person claims to represent God and yet misrepresent him, they are in effect dragging his name through the dirt. Such a person is using his name in vain. You see, to claim to be a Christian is to represent his name. And yet, to claim to be a Christian and yet dishonor him in what we say or how we live is in effect to use his name in vain. Uh, we misrepresent God when we wear his name but not his character. Early in the church age, a man named Ananias, along with his wife Sapphira, decided to lie. It was a premeditated thing. They decided to lie to the whole church. Everybody's giving, you know, to, to help uh, the, the early church in those formative days uh, in Jerusalem uh, to, to meet the needs of the church. People were giving all that they had to this cause. And they too claimed to be sold out to the Lord, saying, we have given everything to the Lord. But they were lying about it. And Peter then confronted Ananias. As we see in Acts chapter 5, Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Not only to the church, to the Holy Spirit. And keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? You could do with it whatever you wanted. There was no force giving here. After it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down, breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. It might really make a difference in terms of it's now time to receive the offering. (laughs) It's a serious matter to blatantly lie to God, which is what people are doing when they lie under oath. It's the most serious sin. You see, Peter didn't just fall a little bit. He fell flat on his face in a most flagrant manner. And, you know, this is an old saying, but it it is so true. Uh, Sin will take you farther than you ever thought you'd go. It will keep you there longer than you ever intended to stay. And it will cost you more than you ever expected to pay. And just that quick, the crowing of a rooster cut through the early morning air. What's that sound? Immediately, yes, a rooster, thank you. You recognize that? Immediately a rooster crowed. Matthew 26, 34, Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, that this night, before the rooster crows, You will deny me three times. A footnote here. Matthew, Luke, and John have Jesus recorded as saying, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. However, Mark has Jesus saying, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now, there's no contradiction here because, uh, you know, if it crows twice, it certainly crows once, right? Uh, But it would seem that Matthew, Luke, and John were only concerned about the sign of the rooster crowing in general, which was true. But Mark, who was Mark? He was the close associate of Peter. Mark got his information from Peter. And he added the detail that the rooster specifically crowed twice. In the moment of it happening... 
the precision of Christ's prediction grabbed Peter by the heart. And also, happening at that very time, was that the Lord made eye contact with Peter, which instantly broke him. Because he really did love Jesus. We read in Luke 22, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord. And how he said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Perhaps at that very moment, Jesus looked through a courtroom window. Or perhaps he was at this point being led across the courtyard. Whatever the situation, their eyes locked. They made eye contact. And just one look from Jesus brought Peter to repentance. What sort of a look was it? I mean, Jesus was battered and bruised terribly at this point. Perhaps spittle still running down the sides of his face. As Jesus looked at Peter, was it a look of disappointment? A look of rebuke? A look of conviction? The look of pity? The look of love? I think it was probably some combination of all these. And it shook Peter to his core. When John the Apostle saw the risen Lord in glory in Revelation 1, he said his eyes were like a flame of fire. One look from Jesus and he sees right through you. This look from Jesus penetrated Peter's soul and instantly he was broken. Verse 75, And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Again, one look from Christ and the memory of what Christ had said about Peter denying him came flooding back into his mind. And he went out and wept bitterly. This was the brokenness of repentance. The Bible talks about godly sorrow in keeping with true repentance, which is in contrast to worldly sorrow that is self-oriented. You know, worldly sorrow, feel feel sorry for self because I'm caught, because of my consequences, because of what's happening to me. Judas, too, was sorry, but it was a worldly sorrow that feels bad for self. Peter truly was broken with godly sorrow. David, too, fell into gross sin. But in repentance, he said this. Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. You see, it's not that Christians never sin. We do. It's not that we never fail. We do. It's not that we never fall. We do. I mean, James says we all stumble in many things. And yet when we do, we hate it. That's Paul's testimony in Romans chapter 7. When we sin, we hate it. But in our failures, God is still at work. Even as he was in Peter's life, God brings about conviction and he brings us to repentance. Hebrews 12 says God disciplines all of his children to build holiness into their lives. Judas felt remorse, but there was no true repentance. Peter failed miserably, but then he was truly repentant. The fundamental difference between Judas and Peter was that Peter had a true faith, whereas Judas did not. Recall that earlier in the night, when Peter was emphatic that he would never deny the Lord, and by the way, he was totally sincere. I totally believe he was totally sincere. But he was emphatic that he would never deny the Lord. At that time, Jesus pulled back the curtain a little bit on the spiritual realm. And he said this to Peter. In Luke chapter 22, the Lord said, Simon, Simon. (laughs) Simon, Simon. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Satan wants you. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. 
And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. The point is that Peter did have real faith. Yes, it was weak, but it did not completely fail because behind the scenes, Christ was praying for him. As believers, Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. This is the secret to our prevailing faith. You say, oh, I'm strong, I'll stand on my own. Oh, no. Let's take back the curtain a little bit. No. Even in failure, for true believers, Christ is there for us, ensuring that ultimately our faith will not fail. All glory to him. Peter had two interrelated problems that caused him to fall. Number one, he had a pride problem. You've heard this somewhere, right? Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Little Peter pride there. And number two, he had a prayerless problem. Remember what Jesus said earlier in the night? Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray. Lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing. Yeah, his spirit was there. But the flesh, the flesh is weak. Peter was well-intended, but he did not realize how weak he was within himself. He had to learn to depend on God instead of depending upon himself. And we all need to learn this. And Peter learned the hard way in a hard fall. The key to victorious Christian living is learning to walk humbly in dependence upon God, which expresses itself in prayer. As Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. When we depend upon ourselves, we get failure. When we depend upon God, as Paul says, he always leads us in triumph in Christ. But failure is not the last word on Peter's experience. In his brokenness, the Lord restored him. And God is in the the business of restoring broken people. After his resurrection, Christ appeared to Peter, restoring him privately. Mark 16, 7, 1 Corinthians 15, 5. And then publicly before all the other disciples, as seen in John 21. Peter, while he played the coward in denying Jesus in the courtyard, later was restored and empowered by the Holy Spirit and boldly proclaimed the truth of the risen Lord in the heart of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And 3,000 people got saved. Special music? Thank you. Unashamedly, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 4, addressed the rulers in Israel, telling them that the risen Lord was for real, and rebuking them for what they had done. And notice what their response was at that time. Acts 4.13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. According to the early church tradition, in the end, Peter was crucified for his faith. However, He said he was not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord and requested that he be crucified upside down, which he was. Thus he died as a faithful martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ. True story. Thomas Cranmer was an early English reformer who lived in the 1500s. I mean, at the very beginning of the the Reformation. When Mary I, otherwise known as Bloody Mary... You know, Roman Catholic Bloody Mary took the throne. She immediately put a a halt to the Protestant reforms. Now, Cranmer was immediately imprisoned with his Christian friends, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. All three were condemned for treason. Latimer and Ridley were immediately taken to be executed, and Cranmer, Cranmer, was forced to watch them to be burned to death, his close friends. Then in a weak moment, Cranmer gave way to pressure to recant his Protestant faith and submit to papal authority. 
After privately signing a recantation, he was then required to publicly explain himself. Much to the shock of everyone, he then publicly denounced his private recantation and denied papal authority. And he declared that his hand that had signed the recantation would be the first that would go into the fire. Pulled from the pulpit where he was speaking, he was immediately taken and tied to the stake to be burned. In the fulfillment of his words, he stuck his offending hand in the fire first. And as he died, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I see heavens opened and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You know, sometimes God's people fail. But that's not the end of the story. We need to take a lesson from Peter. Jesus told Peter, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. And Peter did this in part by giving us two letters. First Peter and second Peter. There we find Peter emphasizing the importance of prayer, saying, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. 1 Peter 4, 7. We find Peter saying, Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we find Peter giving this solemn warning. In 2 Peter 3, almost his sign-off statement, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the air of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Peter recognized that God's people can fall. They can potentially be led away in air. So the exhortation is to be steadfast and to grow in grace. Well, God help us to take a lesson from Peter. We are only as strong as our dependence upon God. We are ever vulnerable to falling. Stay prayerful and humble. This is the key to walking in victory. Let's stand and have our closing song. Oh, oh.